All right, well, this morning we are going to be back in the Gospel of Luke, and believe it or not, we are getting to the end of Luke. We have been in Luke for quite some time, but it's the, it's the longest gospel, so cut me some slack here. So, uh, And oh, just a reminder, uh, tonight we will um, we'll be, we're not quite done with the letter of Jude, but tonight we'll be back in the, in the book of Jude, uh, and, uh, but we will be looking at the last two verses, and then next week, next Sunday night, we'll finish that up. That service is at 5 p.m., so, but uh, uh, I'm going to go ahead and read our passage from Luke chapter 23. Verses 44 through 56, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Uh, Hear the word of the Lord. I'll bring the text up on the screen. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, when, when, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father... Into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation. The Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed him and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, perfect, and inerrant word. May he bless it to his people richly. So when I was in college, I worked for a reform boarding school for troubled teenagers. In fact, uh, um, one of the students there was the son of a famous NFL coach. (laughs) I got to meet him. He's a nice kid. Uh, One weekend, I was assigned. I I had been, I had, uh, uh, I had been trying to get them to go to a, uh, a, 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 even loosely evangelical church for a long time, but they were very committed to either taking the Jewish students to synagogue and then everyone else gets to go to the Unitarian church. And, uh, and, and one time I got assigned to go take uh, uh, and uh, the students, which means watch them and make sure they don't do anything bad. Um, this is a reform school for troubled kids. Uh, and so uh, it's, uh, uh, there was a, uh, a camping trip with the local Unitarian church. And, uh, and so I got to go along, and, uh, and, and I learned some things about Unitarians. I won't share all of them this morning, but, uh, but I did learn that Unitarians don't like to define things. 
and, and I remember even talking to one, one of the ladies there that was, uh, that was in kind of the leadership, uh, very involved in the Unitarian Church there, and she just said, yeah, she said, we don't, we don't really do that. We just, uh, we, we, even our rules, we don't really have rules. They're just kind of more like guidelines, you know? And uh, so she's like, she's like the pirates from the, you know, the pirates of the Caribbean. You know, they just have guidelines, you know. They keep it vague. And, uh, and, and so they, they, they like the mystery. They like the vagueness of it. And look, we, as Christians, we say, look, there's plenty of mystery in our faith. There's plenty of mystery in the doctrine of the Trinity, in the doctrine of the, of the two natures of Christ. And the, there's lots of mystery to be found if you read your Bible. There's lots of mystery there. But there is also lots of definition. There is lots of clarity, especially about the most important things. And if you're looking for the, you know, a, a summary of the basic, uh, of the basic you know, facts of the faith, uh, it's hard to go wrong with the Apostles' Creed. And it has all the essential information in it for the Christian. The creed itself is, is centered upon God. It's actually organized around the Trinity. It has three sections. The first section about the Father, the section, about, section is about the Son, and the third section is about the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, but, it, it, but this highlights even that from the earliest days of the life of the church, the faith of Christians was not some nebulous, vague thing that was left to each person to define for themselves. Our individual experience of the faith is unique. How I experience Christianity is unique to how you experience Christianity because we are individuals. But... What defines the faith, what defines the doctrine of God, what defines the doctrines of sin and salvation are not left to us. Those are not unique. I remember when I was in seminary, I had to write a paper on, uh, we were assigned a paper to write on uh, justification, on how do we get, how we made right with God, the doctrine of how we made right with God. And, and and, And it was in my systematic theology class, and one of the students raised his hand and said, are you looking for an original uh, um, you know, uh, you know, um, writing of of it, and the professor said, "Not unless you have one." He said, "I expect to be very bored reading your papers." All right, so um, and because there's nothing new, even uh, I believe it was, I believe it was Charles Hodge, was one of the Princeton uh, uh, professors, bragged about in the history of Princeton they had not taught one new thing. All right. This text highlights two key facts of the faith that have great significance, essential significance for the good news of Christianity. Jesus died on the cross. And secondly, Jesus was buried in a tomb. Without those two things, we are in great trouble. And it's obvious that these two facts are significant to Luke because Luke could have just said in a single sentence, and Jesus died and they buried him in a tomb. But what does he do? He spends 12 verses describing what's going on surrounding the death of Christ and his burial. There is something happening here that Luke wants us to reflect on, to meditate upon. And so there is then in the gospel writer's mind something special about the death of Jesus. 
and even his burial. And we're going to consider those two facts this morning. We'll begin with how Jesus died on the cross in verses 44 through 49. And, and Luke tells us that there were actually significant signs that attended the death of Jesus in verses 44 through 45. Two signs that one, one scholar referred to as a cosmic sign and a cultic sign. The first, the cosmic sign involved the darkness covering the land at the sixth hour. Now, um, you have to remember that mechanical clocks were not invented until, like, the most basic rudimentary clock, mechanical clock, didn't come about until, I think it was a monk in, like, the 1300s came up with it. So prior to that, in the ancient world, I mean, they had sundials and different ways to try to tell what time it was, but what do you need in order to use a sundial? Sun. Okay, sundials don't work at night, all right? I've been trying to get my, you know, my sundial work at night. It ain't working, all right? So uh, it only works during the day for some reason. So... Uh, because they would measure time when the sun came up at daybreak. And that's when, time, that's when the day would start. They, would, they only had 12 hours in the day because the day was daylight. And so, uh, so, the, day, so the sun usually, daybreak was usually around 6 a.m. And so the sixth hour is noon. The sixth hour is about noon. And we're told at sixth hour at, at 12, that means uh, it was dark. Darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour, which would be 3 p.m. Well, I don't know, you know, from 12 to 3 is not usually a dark time of the day. It is the brightest part of the day. And so what it's saying is that at the brightest, hottest part of the day, it was dark. Darkness covered the land. And so this doesn't mean that the whole world was, you know, know, encapsulated in darkness. There are a few English translations that say the whole world. It just says the land. And so, and so some trans, translators have broadened out to the whole world. Most uh, scholars uh, uh, would argue that it's mainly just the land right there around uh, in the land of Israel or Palestine, whatever you want to refer to it as, but that area and, uh, um, surrounding Jerusalem. And, uh, and, and so some have tried to explain this. They'll say, oh, okay, well, what happened was it was an eclipse. And we all know ancient people are stupid. So when they saw it, they, you know, they, they, saw, they saw the darkness, they started, you know, hitting their heads and beating their chests and, and, saying, and saying, you know, darkness, you know, bad. Well, there's a couple of problems here. Uh, first, uh, eclipses don't last three hours. Uh, and, and even if one did, if you wanted to stretch out, well, it started and then ended and maybe we're doing fuzzy with the time. Okay, fine. Uh, the second thing is that the Passover is actually timed uh, to occur when the moon is full. They go by a lunar calendar. And so that means if you have a full moon, you can't have an eclipse. And so, and so this is not a natural occurring event that just happened to coincide with the death of Jesus. So what happened? Well, Luke tells us simply that the sun's light was failing. It should have been bright, but it was dark, is what he's saying. A miraculous wonder, not unlike the plague of darkness that fell upon Egypt in the Exodus. The sun was not operating as it ought to. The cosmos was breaking. Light was failing. Why? Because the light was nailed to a cross. The light that came into the world was dying. The second sign was a cultic sign. It was the tearing of the veil that, that protected access from the Holy of Holies. 
It separated out from the most holy place. And the separation was necessary because the Holy of Holies was a place where uh, the Ark of the Covenant rested, that uh, it was the place where no man could enter except the high priest uh, once a year. The, the veil itself was a double curtain about 90 feet tall, not something you can just rip with your bare hands. Yet it was torn from top to bottom in fulfillment of the ministry of Christ. Because the Son of God, as the book of Hebrews tells us, was preparing to enter the true tabernacle, the true heavenly temple. And because he was, the earthly one was no longer necessary. The temple veil was torn because God's special presence was no longer going to be there. And further, the way of fellowship and salvation was opened permanently through Jesus Christ in his work as our priest upon the cross. Jesus now is the place of forgiveness and mercy, the place where our prayers are heard and answered. So these two signs signify the importance of Jesus' death and this massive change that is occurring as we move from the old covenant to the new covenant in his blood. And so Jesus uh, has, he dies and he has these significant signs that attend to his death. But also in verse 46, we are told that Jesus gave up his life. And I state it plainly in that way to highlight this very fact. That, uh, the, that not only did Jesus die, but the way he gave up his life matters. He cried in a loud voice, calling forth the words of King David in Psalm 31 verse 5. In that psalm, David cried out, entrusting himself to the Lord to deliver him from his enemies. And here also is a statement of trust. But these words are not cried out by David, but by David's son, who is also David's Lord. And Jesus, in quoting these words, entrusts himself, as Peter said in his letter, to the one who judges justly. He entrusts himself to his heavenly Father, that his Father will not fail to deliver him, not only from his enemies, but from death itself in the coming resurrection. But consider the two things here. First, that Jesus entrusted himself to God his Father to his very last breath upon this earth. Second, well, it is a true statement by the apostles later to say that the Jews and the Romans killed Jesus by crucifying him. In point of fact, Jesus gave up his spirit to the Father. In fact, it's, uh, it's understood that if, if this is, it's from passages like this that where we get, you've heard the phrase, give up the ghost. Or this idea of giving up the spirit, the, the spirit of life. That's actually where this comes from. But what we need to note here is that Jesus laid down his life of his own accord. He said at any moment he could call legions of angels to come and save him. It wasn't that the Romans didn't force him to, 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 by taking his life. The Jews didn't take his life unless he was willing to give it and to allow them to take it. And even at the very end, he yielded his spirit to the Lord to his father. In fact, actually, none of the gospels say the words, Jesus died. 
Now, it says it in the letters, the apostles, and they write that in the letters that Jesus died, and that is true. But they all say some form of he gave up the spirit, his spirit, he yielded his spirit, or he breathed his last. That last phrase, breathed his last, was not a common way of describing someone dying. It's Luke's way of saying he died, but there's something strange going on here. Something more than a normal death here. And this is all brought to a point by the third fact concerning Jesus' death, which is that there were witnesses in verses 47 to 49. And there are three groups of witnesses, you call, or three types of witnesses. Uh, the first is the centurion, the centurion who declares that Jesus was indeed righteous, that he was innocent. He saw how Jesus had acted when they crucified him uh, while he was on the cross. As uh, we noted many weeks ago, and we talked about this, when criminals were being crucified, they didn't have nice things to say to their crucifiers. But Jesus didn't condemn them. He said, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. When he was up on the cross and people were hurling insults at him, that even one of the men that was crucified with him was hurling insults at him. What did he do? He told the other one, you will be with me in paradise. The centurion saw what, how Jesus acted, how he responded, and it was different. Something he'd never seen before. He also saw something he'd never seen before, that it was dark for three hours at the brightest part of the day. And then, when Jesus yielded his spirit, the darkness lifted. The centurion would have certainly began his relationship with Jesus by looking down upon him as a condemned Jewish criminal and even scum from a Roman perspective. But Jesus' death instead brings forth the certainty of his innocence. Jesus was indeed innocent of any crime. The scriptures tell us that Jesus died in innocence so that the guilty might be forgiven. He received the pronouncement of guilt, of our guilt, that we would be declared innocent on account of his righteousness. Even his calling upon his father carries a certain amount of significance. Matthew Henry, writing on this hundreds of years ago, wrote, When Jesus was lifting up his life and soul for us, he did for us call God Father, that we through him might receive adoption as sons. The second type of witness was the crowd of people who had gathered for the spectacle to come to gawk and to jeer and indeed to, to find some amount of gruesome entertainment. And they found something they didn't expect. They came to be entertained and they left beating their chests in grief. That's the sign of mourning in the ancient world. And it, yeah, and, and it was fairly common if, uh, if somebody, if you had Jewish people, if a Jewish criminal was crucified, uh, there might be a few women that go up there and kind of do this, you know, kind of as a sign. That's not what Luke describes here. The crowds went home, beating their chests as they went away. Went away. They came to see a criminal get justice, and instead they saw the innocent Son of God get killed murdered. They came with malice. They left with grief. 
And look, many of us come to the cross of Jesus for a host of reasons. Many of them are selfish. Some of them, you know, so, some come to see, uh, to come see a, a just a, a, simply a man who's just going to help him out a bit. Come see a coach, come see a guru, someone, you know, someone's just going to make things, life a little bit better. Some come to the cross of Jesus to find a vending machine, a genie, or Santa Claus. But whatever we may be when we come to the cross of Jesus, when we come with, with pride or we come with despair, we see our sin in that cross. We see the cost of our evil thoughts, our words, and our deeds in his crucifixion. We see the cost of our redemption in the, bo- in the, in the, in the bloodied Son of God. And we rightly beat our own chests with grief. We even sing, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die. Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for crimes that I have done he groaned upon the tree? Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. The third group were are a group of people that are noted by two things. One, that they were all acquaintances or followers of Jesus, men and women. And secondly, they stood far off at a distance, watching. We're not told how they felt. We're not told what they did. We're not told what they said. The key thing about Jesus at his death is that he was alone. And even if they had wanted to help him, and they surely did, they were helpless to do so. And what what, what this highlights for us here is that it is not merely about, salvation is not primarily about what we feel about Jesus. What I feel about Jesus is not what saves me. It is not that I like Jesus or that I call Jesus my friend. Even here, the friends of Jesus were helpless to improve the lot of their master, and even more are they helpless to save themselves from the judgment of God. Now, before we continue on, we need to, I want to add one more point of application. And that in his dying, Jesus presents to us the Christian hope as we face the death of our mortal bodies upon this earth. He presents to us a very practical example, even giving us the words we may need to say at the time. Because in reality, those who trust in Christ do not die. Jesus told us that. If we believe in him, we, though, though we may die, we actually re- don't ever die. Our mortal flesh ceases to operate in this world, yes, and we call it death. But like Jesus, our spirit is entrusted into the hands of the Father. And what a great comfort in dark times that is. Some might argue back and say, well, that's a cold comfort because you're dying. 
Atheists and unbelievers sneer at such things. But my response is, but you have no comfort at all. You have coldness, oblivion. But in reality, the delusion will be pulled back and you'll face eternal judgment. There is no comfort in life or death for the unbeliever. But the believer has eternal comfort. Because our spirits are entrusted to. They are sealed by the Holy Spirit in the grace of God. And so amid these great signs, Jesus cried out to his heavenly Father. He breathed his last upon the cross in the view of many witnesses. And secondly, Jesus was buried in a tomb. Verses 50 to 52. And there's a little, kind of almost like a little mini lesson right here in, in the story of Joseph of Arimathea. Um, not only is his name fun to say, okay, it, uh, it, it, there's, it, we learn from him that a righteous man does what good he can when he can. A righteous man does what good he can when he can, especially in the face of uncertainty. In verses of 50 to 52, we learn about Joseph of Arimathea, which we find out there's not a lot to know about Joseph of Arimathea. We don't even know where Arimathea is. So some speculate it's 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. We don't actually know. It's guesswork at this point. Uh, But Luke does tell us a few things about him. He tells us that he was a member of the council, that is the Sanhedrin. Uh, Now, and he says, like, but before you hold that against him, Luke says, uh, you need to know that he did not consent to what they did to Jesus in condemning him to death. In fact, he was a good and righteous man, Luke tells us. He apparently was a follower of Jesus, and he was looking for the kingdom of God, that thing that Jesus liked to preach about so much. So what is a man like Joseph, a good and righteous man who followed Jesus, the follower of Jesus, and Jesus who's just been crucified, is dead, hanging there on a cross? What does Joseph do now? What do you do? No one's expecting the resurrection. What do you do? Joseph didn't know what was going to happen a few days later. So what does he do? Does he pray, God, give me a sign, make a bird pass by, you know, and if you do this, I'll do that. No, what does he do? He, He uses his status as a member of the Sanhedrin to go to Pilate and to take Jesus' body down so he can give him a proper burial. He does the righteous thing. He does the only thing he could. He decides to bury Jesus in a tomb that he had reserved for himself. The interesting thing is that tomb would be vacant relatively soon, and he would still get to use it at the end of his life. But this highlights something that, the, that quietly happens in the Bible a lot. There's lots of examples of this. Where God's people, individual, comes across a situation, they don't know what to do. And often our default today is we want to go pull a Gideon and start throwing fleeces all over the place. I'm like, the only thing you're good a fleece for is to have a vest in the cold way. Okay, get a fleece vest and that's it. Don't be throwing fleeces all over the place, all right? That's not, that's, that's not what we're told to do. What are we told to do? We're told to do the righteous thing that is in front of us and trust God to guide us. Trust him to lead us and trust him with the results. But we have here in verses 53 to 56 what we can call a strange but certain burial. 
If there were any doubts as to the certainty of Jesus' death, his physical death upon the cross, then we, need to, we can lay them the rest here because uh, you can know for sure that Pilate, the Roman governor, is not going to allow Jesus to be taken off the cross unless he is truly dead. Uh, also, history attests that, uh, you know, the, the, the historical records attest that the Romans were very good at killing people. And they were very good at killing people on crosses, especially when that's your day job. They would even break the legs of them. In fact, Jesus was remarkable because he died so quickly. They also, Luke doesn't record it, but we also know the other gospel accounts that they pierced his side, his heart, to ensure that he was dead before they took him down from the cross. And this just kind of debunks the, what's called swoon theory, that Jesus wasn't really dead. He kind of almost seemed dead. And it's like, okay, uh, uh, no, he, he was dead. But I call it a strange burial because uh, crucified criminals almost always were just tossed into a mass grave with no ceremony. Remember, the crucifixion was the most shameful death uh, conceived in the ancient world, and those who died by it were not to be mourned. They were not to be missed or honored. There were were very few exceptions to this. There were a few exceptions they found in in the archaeological evidence, uh, but very, very few And so it was exceptional what Joseph did here. With tenderness, Luke describes, he took down Jesus' body. I mean, think about the brutality that that body was submitted to and the tenderness to which Joseph treats it with. He takes the body down and he wraps it in linen and he lays it in the tomb. We're told that it was the day of preparation for the coming Sabbath, which, uh, which remember, those days would run from evening, from, from the evening of the previous day to the evening of the next day. So it would be uh, it's Thursday evening to Friday evening was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath begins Friday evening. In that time, Joseph was unable to make full preparations for embalming Jesus' body. The women who had followed Jesus all the way from the north in Galilee, they prepared the spices and the ointments to embalm Jesus' body. And, 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 but for all of this, it, it was a strange but certain burial. Jesus was truly dead, and his body was truly laid in a tomb. And I say this because, as I alluded to earlier, there are still those today who insist that Jesus didn't really die. Um, or um, or uh, one of my favorite uh, 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 excuses of, why, uh, of, of what happened and why people got mixed up with the race, they're like, the women went to the wrong tomb. You know, because women directions, right? You know, no, like, no, it says explicitly in the text, they took special note of where Jesus' body was laid. They're not going to get this wrong. And so Jesus died on the cross for, he died and he entered the grave. When the scriptures make clear, what the signs testify to, why Luke is recording this is because Jesus died on the cross for his people, but he also entered the grave for his people as well. Jesus went into death and laid under the power of death for our sake. And so we're going to get to the resurrection and the power of the gospel. We're going to get to all these things that come. But we need to see that the passion of Christ ends here. His suffering for his people ends here. And what we have here is a lot of uncertainty for the people of God in this moment. But what we see here is the interplay of faith and love amidst all this uncertainty. We know what's about to happen with Jesus' body. 
Luke knows what is about to happen, but Joseph of Arimathea doesn't know it. The women don't know it. And so they do what is righteous. They keep God's command. They keep the Sabbath. But as uh, one uh, scholar wrote, uh, wrote about this, he said what these women and what Joseph la- might lack in faith and understanding, they make up for in their warmth of love for their, for their master, for Jesus. That's a comforting reality for the Christian. Our knowledge of faith is so often woefully incomplete. Our trust in God when times are hard is weak and failing. And even when we have times of blessing, we blush to lift our faces because we often forget God when things are good. But we seek, we, we see here weak faith and imperfect love that will be rewarded by God. Even just by the fact that these women and Joseph of Arimathea are honored even by us today as we read about them as those who loved the Lord and did what they could. And so if you're a follower of Christ today and you say, look, I, I just, I got to admit, I don't know enough. I don't trust God enough. I will tell you that those things are most certainly true. And they're most certainly true of me. We ought to make every endeavor to increase in our knowledge of God, to increase in our love for God, to increase in our trust for God. But, but dear Christians, like, do you, do you not, do not make the mistake of substituting your, your knowledge of Christianity and the Bible for the work of Christ on your behalf? Do not mistake, make the mistake of substituting the strength of your faith for the cross of the Son of God. The faith is how we get, how we receive grace. It is not the merit of it. It is only found in Jesus Christ. We love God because He loved us first in Jesus Christ. He loved us better at the first. He loves us better uh, even today. We will never love God better than He loves us. But we will grow in our knowledge and love of God for all eternity. And so we have this morning these two great facts of the Christian faith. That the Christian faith is actually rooted in historical events. Christ died on the cross for our sins. He was buried in the tomb to free us from the power of the grave. And so if you are in Christ, then you need to be reminded, because I'm sure you could say it, I'm sure you've known it, but you forget it, as I do, that you, that the dominion of sin has no power over you, that you are freed from the shackles of death. In Jesus By his Holy Spirit, he has laid hold of our hearts and souls, and he will not release us into death's grip again. Rather, when our mortal bodies expire, 
We breathe our last and we give up the ghost. We shall enter into his glorious presence. As the Puritans like to call it, we will be translated into heaven. What is more, he will replace our weak, frail, sin-ridden bodies with glorious bodies in the kingdom of God. And so since Jesus died on the cross, since he was buried in the tomb, and all for our sake, let us stop living as if sin has its hold upon us, that the grave is the great conqueror and leveler of, of us all, but let us instead trust him. Let us find our hope in him. Let us do what is righteous today, knowing that by faith alone, he will give us eternal life and eternal joy in heaven and in the kingdom to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Jesus we have a glorious Savior, a Savior who is a faithful and perfect high priest who identifies with his people who identifies with us in our weakness, in our frailties, in our failures, who indeed has taken the wrath of our sins upon himself, that we may be declared righteous in your sight, that we may be adopted into your family as the children of God, that we may have an, an eternal inheritance, that Jesus it truly belongs to him, but that he shares with us because he is good and gracious and loving and kind. Lord, may that cause us to rejoice. May that fuel our passion and our, and, and our hunger to be men and women following after the Lord, to be putting sin to death by the grace and help of the Spirit and not looking to ourselves for our justification but by every endeavor and strength of our being, striving after the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God as Jesus commanded, but knowing that all success, all hope, all assurance is found in our Lord and Savior and not in us. And we give you the praise for it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand now and